time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain have the workers from their toil? I have seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with. He has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into their minds. Yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and to enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, It is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor can anything be taken from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. That which has already been and that which will be already is, and God seeks out what has gone by. The word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I heard a story recently about a pastor who was much beloved by his congregation for the simple fact that he ended his services always right at noon. That was until one Sunday when the unthinkable happened, and he kept on preaching until 12.30. And at the door on the way out of the service, one of his elders said to him angrily, what happened to you this morning? And he said, well, For years, I've always put a mint in my mouth before the service began, and it was always gone before noon. That way, I didn't have to worry about the time. Well, this morning, I I chewed on the mint, and it just wouldn't go away, and that's when I realized I was chewing on a button. (laughs) Luckily for all of you, that's not my chosen method of keeping and understanding the time. I am quite obsessive when it comes to keeping track of the time. I, I once heard, I saw a little comic that said, there's a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. Um, and that being the case, I, I don't rely on a mint. I don't even rely on the clock in the back of the sanctuary, which is notoriously either just a little bit too slow or just a little bit too fast. I instead rely on the atomic clock in my, on my phone and on my Apple Watch. The atomic clock keeps the exact precise time. And they are housed at the Naval Observatory. And some of those atomic clocks are so precise and so advanced that they will not lose or gain a second for 300 million years. And if you've been around Greenfield for the last two and a half years since I've been here, you know how geeked that makes me. (laughs) Knowing the precise time. You know I live my life by one philosophy Early is on time, on time is late, and late is just unacceptable. Some of you agree with that. Some of you are really repulsed by that idea. (laughs) But you should always read the fine print to anyone's life philosophy because there are exceptions to that. I have two small children. Those are my fine print to that life philosophy who like to make me late to everything, who don't understand being early is the most important thing, that being 15 minutes early for the 15 minutes early you want to be is a really great feeling. Um... Of course, the other exception is when I go to a party at somebody's house, you don't show up early for that. That's just plain old rude. (laughs) Of course, we pastors on Sunday mornings are not the only ones keeping track of time. We're all keeping track of time. We have schedules. We have appointments. We have to be at our jobs at certain times. 
The kids have to be at piano or soccer practice. As one preacher says, in the modern world, our master is the clock and the calendar. But it wasn't always that way. This whole idea of segmenting our days into blocks of time is a relatively new idea. It actually has a religious background to it. It was the Benedictine monks who liked to fill their days with all sorts of activities. They liked to segment their days to make sure there was always something going on because in their minds, idleness was evil for the soul. So our days always had to be filled with something. And then in the 15th century, clock towers began to rival church steeples in the the town squares of Europe. And then in the the 17th, clocks got minute hands for the first time. And then towards the end of the 19th and the middle of the 20th century, we had a woman named Ruth Belleville, known as the Greenwich Time Lady. And she would sell time to a select group of clientele in London. So what she would do is she would go every Tuesday to the Greenwich Observatory and look at the clock tower that had the exact precise time, and she would synchronize her watch, and then she would get on the train, and she would go around to her select group of clientele and give them the exact time for a fee, of course. (laughs) Now, we in the Motor City know a little bit of something about segmenting and breaking up our days, right? It was Henry Ford who came up with the idea of the five-day-a-week, eight-hour-a-day workday, Breaking up time into into eight-hour segments, eight hours for work, eight hours for leisure, eight hours for sleeping. That our lives have become so much more organized, so much more productive as we have reduced time down from seasons to, to months to weeks to days to hours to minutes to seconds. And sometimes even further down than that, like on Wall Street where nanoseconds are incredibly important A nanosecond can make the difference between a trade going through or not going through, between increasing your wealth or losing your wealth. But of course, time is more than simply a mechanical process. It's more than simply the movement of the sun in the sky. It's more than simply the the movement of the clock or from one day to the next. Time is all about meaning. And and even Kohelet, remember Kohelet is the name of the person who wrote down Ecclesiastes where we find ourselves for the next few weeks. Even Kohelet, who rages at the absurdity and the contradictions of the universe, understands that there is meaning to time, that there are seasons to our lives. In some of those most well-loved verses of the Bible, there is a time and a season for everything that happens under heaven. The time to be born, a time to die, a time for gathering stones, a time for casting stones away, a time for planting, a time for plucking up, a time for war, and a time for peace, just to name a few of those. The time and a place for everything that happens under heaven. This is not just about the mechanical movement of the clock, the movement of the, the earth around the sun. It's about the meaning that we give to time. The thing is, none of us control time. Much to my chagrin, none of us control what happens as the world moves. We can only respond to it. The fact that we hear these words so often at funerals should clue us into the fact that we can't control what happens, but we can respond to what happens in time. We can respond to what happens under the sun. There is a meaning and a season for everything. What Kohelet says is that the movement of the universe is God's business, that God holds past, present, and future all together in God's hands. And our task is to live in the present. 
But that can be a really hard thing, can't it? That we all sometimes have this longing for the past or this yearning for the future. And now, of course, neither of those things is necessarily a bad thing. Having a, a sense of the past is a good thing, a knowing of where you came from, this sense of gratitude for where we've been. We look at a picture of our kids and we remember when they were small or younger, we, a certain song comes on the radio and we're immediately taken back to that simpler time in our lives. Nostalgia is not necessarily a bad thing. We 90s kids are becoming increasingly more and more nostalgic these days. But nostalgia can also not be a great thing either. It can keep us trapped in the past. You know those people who think about the, how things used to be and, and wondering and wanting that past to come back. The thing about nostalgia is it creates a reality sometimes that was never really there in the first place. That we can remember the good days when our kids were young and small and said cute things like my son said this morning about preaching about tarantulas and scorpions from the pulpit this morning. He wanted to give the sermon, by the way. <laughs> it, it can bring back those good memories, but it also can keep us from remembering the hard and the difficult things. Those moments at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning saying, why won't you sleep? Or that song comes on the radio reminding us of that simpler time, but it can also rob us of remembering the challenges in our own lives or even the, the social upheaval that surrounds us. Of course, on the other side of that, there's this yearning for the future, the yearning for what is to come. And again, not necessarily a bad thing. We should plan for our lives. We should look forward to things. I think this yearning for a better future is what lays in the hearts of all the great prophets and social activists, people who imagine a better world on the horizon. And when you're going through a difficult, challenging time, the future, the, the longed-for future can be like a, a lighthouse in the midst of the storm. But of course, this longing for the future can have its shadow side as well. Those people who get stuck in this looping refrain of, oh, I just can't wait until, I just can't wait until, I just can't wait until. And every time you get to the, I just can't wait until, another one starts, I just can't wait until. Among the religious folks that I grew up with, the conservative evangelicals, we heard a lot about the future, this longing to go to heaven when we died someday. The, the people who would approach you on the street corner and say, you know, if you put your trust in Jesus, you can enjoy eternity with God. Okay, but what about right here, right now? The sort of people who would, who would ask you, if you die tonight, do you know where you're going? Which is a great question to ask anybody. And I think to that, Kohelet would say, probably the funeral home. <laughs> For others of us, the future might be a terrifying thing. If we can't control what goes on in the universe, the future might terrify us. Where human beings live, Kohelet says, is neither in the rose-colored past nor in the longed-for future, but they live squarely here in the present. What Kohelet's advice to us in this universe that moves and steams on forward without our signing off on it, what he says to us is that we are to simply enjoy our lives. He says to eat and drink and find pleasure in all of your toil. If last week Kohelet sounded like a nihilist, that we're all just like feathers floating around accidental like on a breeze and there's absurdity to the universe, this morning Kohelet sounds a lot like a hedonist. Eat and drink and be merry. Raise your glass high, for tomorrow we die, as they say. But just as Kohelet is neither a nihilist, that the universe is not simply devoid of meaning, 
Neither is Kohelet a, a hedonist. That all we're supposed to seek in this life is, is pleasure and the things that feel good. What Kohelet says is that we are to enjoy our toil, to enjoy everything that happens under the sun. And if you notice that list of everything that happens under the sun, not everything is good or happy or joyful. Some of it is difficult and hard and painful. Our task is to live fully in the present amidst everything that happens under the sun. There's a quote that I love from the ancient church father Irenaeus who says, The glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God, the fullness of who God is, is revealed in human beings who find themselves fully and completely alive, living in the present, living amidst everything that happens under the sun. There is a time for mourning, just as there's a time for dancing. There's a time for tearing up. There's a time for planting. There is a time for everything that happens under the sun. And our task is to live fully. That is the God-given gift, the God-given task to be fully alive, to be fully human amidst everything that happens amidst our lives. In the movie Click, the comedy Click, uh, Adam Sandler plays uh, the character Michael Newman, a workaholic architect who works way too many hours and who endures the bullying of his overbearing boss. He often chooses work uh, at the expense of his family, his wife and his two kids. Uh, One day at the beginning of the movie, one night he's at home and he's frustrated with a problem I think a lot of us get frustrated with from time to time, far too many remotes to control the entertainment in the house. I see some of you smiling recognition. You probably were yelling about it this morning. And so Michael decides to go and find a universal remote. And so he wanders into a bed, bath, and beyond. And he's wandering on the store. And he is so tired, he decides to lay down on one of those little sample beds they have there. And he falls asleep. And then he wake, when he wakes up, he meets a man named Morty, who gives him a universal remote. And he says, be careful. There's a warning that comes with it. You can't throw it away, it can't be destroyed, and you can't return it. And what Michael soon figures out is that uh, the remote can not only control the entertainment in his house, it can control all of reality. He can pause and fast forward, he can rewind, but he can kind of just see the images. He can't like live in the past. He can control reality, which he soon uses as to his own advantage at work. As he gains an upper hand on his other employees, he pauses reality to mess with his boss a little bit. He also learns that he can fast-forward through the difficult things in life, like he has an illness so he can quickly fast-forward through all of that. And what he learns from Morty is that as he's fast-forwarding reality, his body is on autopilot. He just sort of is going through uh, the motions. Towards the beginning of the movie, when he is passed over for a promotion that he feels like he deserves, that he longs for, and he doesn't get what he, what he wants, the disappointment is so crushing and so much for him to handle that he decides to fast-forward reality until he gets the promotion. And in the process, he fast-forwards through an entire year of his life. An entire year of his life lived on autopilot. And in that year, he learns that he and his wife have gone into marriage counseling, the family dog has died, his kids are older. At this point, the remote is sort of learning Michael's preferences, the things that he wants to skip in life. And so not only the the waiting for the promotion, but also just the mundane daily tasks like taking a shower. The remote automatically skips through his shower for him. 
starts learning his preferences. And so when he goes to work to start this new, this new promotion he's gotten, he, his boss tells him that he is retiring, that soon uh, Michael's going to be promoted again, and someday he could be the CEO of the entire company. And the remote, on hearing this, knows Michael's preferences and skips ahead to when Michael is promoted to CEO of the company, which leaps over 10 years of his life. And so when Michael comes back to consciousness, back to himself, he's now living by himself, he's divorced, uh, his kids are moody teenagers now. And now his, now his, his now ex-wife comes and has an argument with him. And the remote, knowing that Michael doesn't like having such conversations, again skips reality forward, and it skips ahead six more years. And in that six years, he learns that his father had passed away. He misses the death of his dad. And so he asks the remote to show him the last conversation he had with his dad, this last conversation he had while he was on autopilot. And that last conversation as it plays is Michael's dad asking him to go out and have lunch with him. And Michael rebuffs him. Of course, all of this is far too painful for Michael to handle. And so he says to the remote, take me to a happier time. And he fast forwards to his son's wedding. And then he fast forwards again. Finally, we get to the end of the movie and he's on his deathbed. And it's revealed that Morty is actually the angel of death. And Michael then wakes up back in that bed at Bed Bath & Beyond at the very beginning of the movie. And he thinks he was dreaming. When he goes home, the remote is sitting there on, the, on his desk and a note from Morty that says, good guys need a second chance or good guys need a break. And so Michael throws the remote in the trash and he goes and he has a pillow fight with his kids. Michael, I think, learns the lesson that Kohelet is trying to teach. There is a time and there is a place for everything that happens under heaven. The good, the bad, the happy, the sad, the difficult, the challenging, the, the joyful, the wonderful, and the mundane. There is a time and there is a place for everything that happens under heaven. That you and I have been given the gift of being human beings, of being fully alive. I think one of the lessons that I've most learned in the 15 or so years since I deconstructed the faith I grew up with to the faith that I inhabit now, one of the things I've learned most is that it is a good thing to be alive. It is a good thing to be a human being. All of that talk about going to heaven when we die, I, I've learned that it robs us of the joy of being human, the joy of being present, that God's glory, the fullness of who God is, is revealed as we are fully and completely alive. So go and reveal the glory of God. Put down the calendar and go and be spontaneous. Turn off the cell phone and the TV and go for a walk. Shirk your responsibilities. Spend way too much on dinner. <laughs> a song comes on the radio that makes you want to cry. Let it. Go have a water balloon fight with your kids or your, or your grandkids. Rage at the injustice of the world. Allow compassion to swell within you. Find beauty and wonder in the mundane things of life. Because in the fullness of our lives, in being fully and completely alive, fully and completely human, the glory of God is revealed. Amen.